minutes by minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time, that's no job. By Lawrence Kasten, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, cause here we go. Howdy and welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. Hi, folks. I'm Dino Carroll. I am a playwright. I write plays that get produced by your local high school or middle school drama club. Plays with titles like Sally Cotter and the Censored Stone, The Humor Games, and Herky Jokeson and the Faux-Olympians. Do you get the basic concept of the type of thing I write? I hope so. Thanks. And speaking of drama, my guest today happens to be a scholar of the form. Isaac Butler is the author of a really fantastic new book about the history of method acting. It is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Isaac is an old uh, pal of mine from my college days, and uh, I am so excited that he agreed to uh, be on the show just uh, Within a couple of weeks after I spoke with him, I heard him being interviewed on national public radio by people like Terry Gross and Scott Simon. And, you know, I'm pretty much like those people, except that I say, um, a lot more. Isaac joins me to talk about Minute 114 of Silverado, but uh, first up, we do spend about 15 minutes chatting about method acting, about the history of method acting, and about his book, and about how method acting has been used in westerns and other genre movies. So if you are really eager to get to the discussion of Minute 114, you might want to jump ahead 15 minutes, but I do think that you will enjoy hearing uh, an expert in the history of an interesting uh, aspect of uh, filmmaking and, uh, and of course, theater making uh, discuss uh, something that he has spent so much time uh, becoming an expert in. Well, without any further ado, let's get going. Okay, my guest today is uh, one of the hosts of the Working Podcast uh, from Slate. He's also the author of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, and more recently, The Method, How uh, the 20th Century Learned to Act. Uh, he is also an old friend of mine. Uh, we were members of a uh, fairly mediocre acapella group together in college, and uh, and I'm very excited to uh, to have him uh, on the show today. Uh, please welcome Isaac Butler. It is so great Isaac, to be here, you? Dean. Uh, should we should we do a little Oh What a Night? Uh, you know, should we just yes, should we just yes, do yes, some? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so Isaac, <laughs> I, we'll talk about the uh, this minute of of the movie soon. I'm very excited about your book, which uh, you know this episode is going to be uh, dropping sometime in mid 2022. So it will have been on the shelves for a while, but as we're recording this, it has not uh, quite yet come out. This is a book about the history of method acting. A lot of people who are not, you know, in uh, in the field of, uh, of acting or adjacent to it um, might not have an accurate definition in their mind of what method acting is. Could you uh, could you give a, uh, uh, a a specific definition of uh, of what to, what to cons- what should be considered method acting? It's so funny. I'm asked this uh, quite yeah. a bit, and the problem, or actually the sort of thrilling thing for me as a writer, is that there's a bunch of different definitions right. of the method and 
you know, I'm a descriptivist. I think that language is a living thing that evolves, but it, but it is true that the what the public thinks the method is is not what someone who teaches method acting thinks the method is. In fact, they're pretty diametrically opposed. So what the public tends to think the method is is, you know, uh, what Daniel Day-Lewis does or in a sort of parodic version what Jared Leto does, right? And you do a sort of right. intense research-driven process in which you live as the character and practice the character's habits and kind of try to embody them as much as possible. And then you don't break character on set, right? That's what people think um, the method is. That is not actually what the method is. Uh, the method as taught by Lee Strasberg, who really codified it. Uh, and you know, if you were working at the actor's studio or if you were studying with Lee Strasberg or, or some of the affiliated people whose names may come up in fact, in this episode, it, it was a process that was very much about the self and about the psychology of a character and about emotions and about, um, connecting, your inner self to the character's inner self and creating that imagined reality through psychology and emotion. And it was most famous or perhaps infamous for this exercise called the effective, that's with an A, the effective memory exercise, where you would try to summon a powerful emotion that your character perhaps was feeling through essentially triggering yourself using the sensory details of a powerful memory. Okay, that sounds pretty highfalutin. So let me try to put it in a sort of concrete term. So, you know, if, if I had to experience the grief that Hamlet feels, you know, maybe I would think about, and my, my father is actually alive, but, you know, in this hypothetical, I'm thinking about uh, my, my deceased father and how I held his hand in the hospital as he was declining. And, and I'm thinking about the, what the texture of his hands felt like and what the smell, the antiseptic smell of the hospital or the beeping of the machines in the background. And, and one of those things is going to trigger this grief in me and I'm going to really feel it. And so that's what Strasbourg, that's not the only thing that the method is, but that's what it was sort of most famous for. Um, uh, and so you can see those are actually two totally different things. One is working from the inside out and one is working from the outside behavior and the world of the character uh, uh, in to find them. They're actually very different. So, so method acting and, and film sort of grew together. Is that fair to say that method acting probably originated as a theatrical approach, but you know, it was developing around the same time that film was getting more and more sophisticated and, uh, and, and maybe it's even actually better suited towards film acting than stage acting. Would you, would you say? Certainly lots of people feel that it's better suited towards film acting than stage acting. Um, That's an accusation that's been leveled at a lot, which is very interesting because Lee Strasberg actually didn't really know anything about um, film acting uh, until he himself became a film actor uh, uh, very late in life. His first, uh, his really, his film debut is as Hiram Roth in The Godfather Part Two, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And then he makes a handful of other movies and then he dies not that long afterwards. (laughs) Uh, going in style is probably the other one that's, that's best known. The original going in style. Um, um, but yes, that's certainly a thing they've said. So, so look, a, a thing happens, and actually the Western is part of this history, where after 1948, 
1948, the Supreme Court rules that the movie studios have to sell off their movie theater holdings. They can't own movie theaters anymore. It, it, it ends the monopoly era of the studios. There's a bunch of other practices it's for, it forbids, but that's the really big one. And um, without that guaranteed revenue for their movies, uh, without that way to cover their risk, um, they movie studios slowly convert over time to being the financers of movies and the distributors of movies instead of the makers of movies. And the studio system comes to an end. And the studio system, um, which existed prior to that, uh, uh, has intertwined with it the sort of old-school persona-driven star system of acting. Cary Grant, Barbara Stanwyck, you know, all these amazing actors of the Humphrey Bogart, you know, all those, all those, all those actors of that period. And when that whole thing falls apart, the thing that comes in in the 50s and 60s and 70s is the method. That is the new, the new kind of American acting that emerges uh, out of those ashes, for sure. I want to ask about method acting and Westerns in, in particular, but uh, taking a, a slightly uh, larger viewpoint, um, how does method acting sort of, is how compatible is it with sort of genre movies in particular? Well, I mean, you eventually reach a point in the 20th century where so many people are studying the method that it just has permeated everything. <laughs> it, it, it's all movies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Jack Nicholson, for example, who's probably one of the great method actors of the 20th century, gets his start in Westerns. Uh, and he makes a number of Westerns over the course of his life. Um, Marlon Brando made a bunch of Westerns over the course of his life, although Marlon Brando would tell you he's not a method actor. That's a totally different side tangent we could get on. Um, Paul Newman, uh, a very great method actor, is in a number of Westerns. Sidney Poitier, who's a method actor, his first movie as a director, Buck and the Preacher, is a Western. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there's this kind of reputation the method has that it's only good for kind of quiet, internalized, yeah. fussy, Kitchen naturalism, yeah. torment, and, you know, all that stuff. But I, I actually don't, I actually don't think that's true. Um, I think that it, it really brought, uh, um, a psychological realism and character grounding to all kinds of different sorts of movies. That's one of its, its really great contributions, honestly. You mentioned a little while ago, you know, sort of the, the, the pre-method approach, the, the persona-based uh, characters. And I was glad to hear you speak, you know, highly, you know, that I think sometimes people, and this is a problem I had when I was still studying acting, is that I felt like if someone was teaching me a particular... Uh, approach to acting, whether it's method acting or anything else, that they thought that was the only good way to to act, and mm -hmm. I bristled at that. And I now realize as we mature that, no, that's just what they were teaching me. It's not necessarily say, that they didn't necessarily think it was the only way. Nobody necessarily thinks it's the only way. It's just a way they were choosing to teach me that, much in the way that I shouldn't get upset that my Spanish teacher isn't teaching me French, or think that my Spanish teacher thinks that it's superior <laughs> to French. That's a great you know? way to put it, yeah. You know, those early Westerns in particular, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the Western stars of the, you know, the, the Hollywood Golden Age were were so much about persona. I mean, you know, stars like, you know, John Wayne and Gary Cooper were, 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 you know, were great screen presences, but they were, you know, fairly wooden even by, you know, standards of the time. Uh, you know, they, you know, they, mm -hmm. you know, people like, you know, James Cagney were the ones who were bringing, you know, passion and, and fire to, uh, uh, to performances. Um, or, or you get like, you know, like, you know, the singing cowboys, you get your Roy Rogers and, and your Gene Autry. Right. Um, so. Um, Tim Blake yeah. Nelson and Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 
Oh, sure, sure. So, um, so uh, do you have uh, in in your your studies method acting? Have you uh, do you have favorite uh, method performances in westerns? Oh, that's a that's a that's a really good uh, question. Well, we we should say to just talk about Silverado for a moment that yeah. Scott Glenn's a method actor. Scott Glenn studied ask, with which George that, Morrison. Which of the cast would you consider? Okay, so Scott Glenn definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Scott Scott Glenn studied with George Morrison, who's the same method acting teacher who trained Gene Hackman, and uh, Scott Glenn is a lifelong member of the Actor Studio from 1968 on. So. I mean, if you like Silverado and you like his performance in it, there's a great example, uh, Gene Hackman and Unforgiven. But to, to talk about the, the classic era, I mean, I'll admit, I, uh, I, I've always struggled with John Wayne. I mean, he's so monumental and charismatic, but the line readings, really, I still have trouble with them um, uh, uh, sometimes. But, you know... Um, an actor like Robert Ryan was in a bunch of Westerns and is, I think, a really brilliant actor. Um, he was in real life a pacifist and he always played these kind of nasty heavies. Uh, and then I think that tension's really interesting. Um, Jimmy Stewart did a number of Westerns and is quite great. Spencer Tracy did a number of Westerns and is quite great. So I tend to like the actors who weren't necessarily specialists in Westerns who were in Westerns. But you were asking about method performances. Um, Jack Nicholson, I think, is great in, um, uh, what is that movie called? Ride into the Whirlwind, Ride Down the World. It's one of his very early movies with Monty Hellman. Hold on, let me look it up. Jack Nicholson, I'm just going to Ride in the Whirlwind. He's really good in that. There's a really interesting movie that he does that, um, Arthur Penn, who is also an actor studio member and eventually the president of the actor studio after Lee Strasberg's death, that Arthur Penn directed uh, with him and Marlon Brando and um, Randy Quaid, who also studied the method in college at the University of Texas, um, uh, through Cecil Pickett uh, was his acting teacher. Um, called The Missouri Breaks, which is a hard movie to find because it's not on streaming, um, um, but is a very odd revisionist Western. Paul Newman is incredible in HUD and very good in Ombre, which is another weird uh, Western um, written or based on an Elmore Leonard story. It's got some weird racial politics. You know, he's one of the, he's like a white man who's raised by uh, Native Americans. And so he knows their ways and is an expert tracker, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, Butch and you know, and of course, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, he's incredible in. Um, there's also, I don't actually love this movie. Most people do, so I should say that I'm in the minority here. But um, Montgomery Clift is in a Howard Hawks Western. It's actually the first movie he made, uh, Montgomery Clift made, but it came out second because of rights issues, um, uh, called Red River. Um, and what's really interesting about Red River is Montgomery Clift is bringing a new um, naturalistic acting style. He also would not call himself a, a method actor, but he was a naturalistic actor, and he's bringing a, a deep commitment to naturalism and psychological realism to this movie. And John Wayne is coming in with his kind of totemic John Wayne-ness, yeah. and the battle between the characters ends up being fought in the acting styles. Um, and uh, that's part of a thing that's going on in the mid 20th century film that I really enjoy that you tend to have a younger generation that are more naturalistic. Maybe they've studied the method or maybe they've studied some other adaptation of uh, the Russian actor, director and theorist, Konstantin Stanislavski's ideas um, in the, in the United States. And um, uh, they're kind of whatever the conflicts are between the generations are also being fought in the form of acting style. And I find that, that very thrilling. 
The, the famous example of that is a story everybody loves to tell about Lawrence Olivier and, and Dustin Hoffman, which I yes, I, which I do talk you, about in my book. Right, which I learned this from you that the whole story that, that Hoffman looking all bedraggled was actually had more to him being out all night partying rather than actually deliberately trying to, uh, to prepare yeah. himself for that scene. So according to Dustin Hoffman, who's a little bit of an unreliable narrator sometimes in yeah. times about his life. So let's take this with a grain of salt. But I actually believe him here uh, that, that um, you know, he was going through a divorce and the character needed to be really tired for this scene and hadn't, hadn't slept in a few days. This is in... Um, the wonderful uh, film Marathon Man, and uh, that he sort of was going to use that aspect of the character as an excuse to party and to not go to sleep and to kind of grieve his failing marriage by going to Studio 54. And one presumes doing a lot of coke, although I don't know, but that's what you did at Studio 54. And, you know, he's going to party all the time. So he shows up on set looking like, and sort of as a joke, he tells Olivier this thing. He's like, oh, I did this thing because, you know, my character needed to do it. But the, the, the clear subtext is, you know, I'm in a lot of pain and this is how I'm dealing with my pain. And, and Olivier, in a very affectionate, avuncular way, says, oh, my dear boy, have you tried acting? Um, that they were actually quite close on the set of that film, Hoffman says. And then he loved him very much. And so uh, Hoffman loved Olivier very much. And Olivier was one of his idols. I mean, that's the weird thing about the method actors is that they all still idolized. I mean, all of them thought John Gielgud was the greatest actor alive. Like, if you look at interviews from that period, they all just adored him. They all adored Olivier. They thought he was a god. And so it's really less about that conflict than it's about two men who both know about bad marriages, because Lord knows Olivier had his marital problems. Sure. Um, a kind of bonding about the relationship between their art and their life. People want it to be a story about, you know, the witty older British man puncturing this, the, sure. the, the young American punk, but it's, it's not really that it's, you know, it's, it's still a good line, also, but yeah. It's a great line. It's an amazing line. It's a great story. I mean, any version of that story is a great story. And Olivier had had a long history of antagonism with the method um, because he directed Marilyn Monroe in The Princess and the Showgirl um, after Marilyn Monroe had fallen under the influence, had gone to study with Lee Strasberg and his wife, Paula. And Paula Strasberg, who directors despised because she interfered with their work, um, was Marilyn's on-set acting coach. And Marilyn was producing that movie. And they, she and Olivier eventually did not get along. And it was a terrible experience for them both. So it's not that Olivier was any fan of the method. It's just I do think that you know he was expressing genuine concern in the way that if you read interviews about Brian Cox talking about Jeremy Strong on Succession, he's always saying like, you know, he's an extraordinarily gifted actor and I just worry about what he puts himself through because I love him and I care about him. All right. All right. Well, let's talk about this minute, uh, a minute that does not feature a great deal of, of acting. It is, you know, is late, we got sort of a minute of, uh, of setup here. So we start off with a, well, those a long cows. shot. Don't you feel like those cows, those cows were like, I have to prepare for being a cow in this well, moment. What is my motivation? We talked about cow. this because a few moments before this, the cows were in full on stampede and, in 1985 right. or 84, whenever this would have been shot, you know, the only way to stage a cattle stampede would be to cause a cattle stampede. I got to assume under some right. degree of control. Um, but uh, but it is uh, when you sort of chop it up like this, you do notice that these cows are way calmer, that this this, this was a short lived uh, stampede. And these cows are mellow at this point as our heroes are, are and, writing. And given the through. editing of the stampede section, I wonder how many people were actually on set during the filming of the stampede, which is like mm -hmm. then intercut with actors on the set. 
in a way that makes me feel like for safety reasons, you know, it might have been staged somewhere else and, and intercut in or, or the actors might not have been there or, or you know, whatever. Because you're meant to think through the staging and the editing that there is like a, basically the, the stampede is covering for the approach yeah. of one of the men who is then shooting at the guards. Right. So, right. so supposedly he's riding a horse and killing people <laughs> yeah. through a stampede, which I don't think you could safely film. So my guess is, is that there's some clever editing trickery uh, yes. going yeah, on there that's... as well. But, but yeah, now we have some mellow cows. They've had some opium or something. <laughs> yeah, they're they're chilling out. Much more chill uh, as our heroes uh, or, you know, very likely stunt writers at this point, because the camera is so far away. You don't need to, to, uh, to get your actors up on the horses for this one. Uh, ride off through them on their way back to Silverado for the, uh, uh, for, for the final act of the movie, essentially. Um, yes. And uh, as, yeah, yeah, uh, as gunshots are heard. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty much catching. This is pretty much. Yeah, there's, the, there's an interesting stormtrooper. You know, Lawrence Kasdan, of course, was involved in Star Wars, and there's a stormtrooper aim problem going on with uh, the, the, the posses, right? They, yes, they, yeah. they, they're the, they're the not the most accurate work, gunmen in the world. Yeah. The good guys' guns work way better, and their bullets are much more fatal. That when good guys. We, we were, I was yes. talking about this in a previous minute. That when good guys get shot in this, you know, they're, um, they're hurt, but, but they do tend to recover. Whereas one shot and a bad guy is gone in uh, in this movie, um, and, and unless again, they're intentionally gone. winging him or shooting him in the hand or doing some other other thing, right? You're right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then the, of course, yeah. So a lot of this is set up, and of course, it's the moment right before the final climax where the kind of stakes have to be risen for Brian Dennehy's character because Brian Dennehy is the main in some ways he's the main antagonist but the movie goes to great lengths to make it very clear that he's actually just an employee of capital do you know what i mean the rich guy is the actual problem brian right. Dennehy is just hired really he's just glorified he's a glorified mercenary at this point and so um uh here uh what what's the character's name ethan um mckendrick mckendrick, McKendrick, McKendrick ethan mckendrick yeah, yeah, is is informing um, uh, Sheriff Cobb, you know, this is your last shot to get rid of these guys or you're going to be in some some serious trouble. And then, of course, what happens, it says they all get killed. Right, right. Yes, yeah, it's um, something else that, that uh, has come up this week is that it's it's interesting casting to cast, you know, Brian Dennehy, already such an established actor, you know, su- such a, a powerful screen presence um, as nominally the secondary villain, um, but, you know, Partially because of the relationships he has with the other characters, partially because of, you know, what he does actively versus, you know, versus passively. He's, is the main villain. I mean, to get back to, to, to Star Wars, I suppose it's a little bit like in the original Star Wars, uh, Vader and, um, and Grand Moff Tarkin, um, where yeah. you know, sure, you know, you know, Tarkin's great. You know, that's a, 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 a great scenery chewing, well, sort of subtly scenery chewing performance, but you know, but Vader's what what you really memorize. You sort of barely even notice that Tarkin is uh, is gone when he uh, just get blown up. And here you have like Dennehy, and then you know, I don't, I'm not actually super familiar with the guy who plays uh, Ethan McKendrick. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, a steadily working actor. I think we saw that, that he had you know credits up till 2018. Um, you know, so you know, working character actor, but but obviously Brian Dennehy was Brian Dennehy. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you know, was there a much longer cut of this film that got 
trimmed down to the two hours and 15 minutes that remain because it, it does seem like there's, it, it, it's not, it's not exactly that the film is messy, but the film goes in a lot of directions and then sort of stops going in them. I mean, to give an example, like Rosanna Arquette, yeah. why is she in this movie? Like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, was there another 20 minutes of I'm going to go a court in Rosanna Arquette or whatever it is, you know? Um, I do wonder, it, I do wonder. Do, do you know we anything given, about that? Um, I, I don't is the short answer. We were given a, uh, a copy of uh, a screenplay. I don't know if it was the shooting script. It definitely are some differences between uh, what we have and, and what's on screen for the minutes I've been dealing with. It's been fairly minor, you know, a, a dialogue change uh, uh, here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one twist, which is, as uh, we've brought up in previous episodes, I find it so funny is the way in which Kevin Costner's character was supposed to have died that uh, in the, in the screenplay, we were told that he was hanged. Um, and, uh, and somehow managed to survive being hanged with just getting some rope burns on his neck. Um, my guess is that when it came time to shoot, they said, no, that's a little too implausible. We'll say you fell off a cliff instead. Um, right. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, certainly, you know, all the, the female parts in this movie are uh, underwritten with the possible exception of Linda Hunt's character, uh, who is at least, you know, not a typical, you know, woman in a Western kind of part, I don't think. Um, that's but, such uh, an incredible yeah. performance. She's yeah. so good in this movie and her chemistry with Kevin Klein is amazing. And I know this isn't our part of our minute that we're talking about, but the movie's refusal to allow them to become a couple is so bizarre to me because like from the minute Kevin Klein starts talking to her, they seem to be mad, like instantly in love with each other. Their chemistry on screen is that great. And the movie seems to be like, no, we can't allow this. She's older than he is, or you know, like like whatever it is. She's older than he is. It's just yeah, like the movie you know, refuses. Um, yeah, I guess I'm trying to think. You know, of any movies that time, it's that really wild. Would have aired up, you know, a a, a Linda Hunt, a, you know, a, a character actress, a, a certainly not conventionally beautiful or, or, or glamorous woman with a, a a leading man like that, unless that was the whole thrust. None of, the of movie. them would. They just. They just. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, back back to this moment, back to this sure. uh, this this minute, and our lovely um, uh, you know man who's setting out some some pottery, some yes, some porcelain, yes, yes, some Chinese some porcelain, nice China, you know, um, and that uh, one imagines is about to get shot. Right, right, yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it, it in does, the ensuing, it's like uh, you know, let's let's carry our plate of glass uh, down the uh, down the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are yeah. you are you watching? Surely, uh, no one will stage a bike chase right, through this yeah. street you're, you're that watching, we are hauling our plate of glass there. Are you watching Book of Boba Fett? Which uh, no, no, is that does that happen in Book of Boba Fett? Yeah, in the in the third episode, which aired shortly before we're recording this, uh, they they had a you know a very much a, a tribute to classic uh, uh, chase scenes where uh, during a, uh, a, a a a chase through the streets of uh, of Mos Eisley, uh, characters are carrying along um, a portrait of Jabba's palace based on um the uh, the uh, Macquarie artwork for it um and uh, and, and speeder bikes crash right through it yes it was uh, uh that's so great about... that's like a, yeah yeah uh, every to, time uh, you see that plate glass going across the street you know something fun's fun's going to happen exactly. but yes no he's cleaning his chinese uh porcelain i guess or yeah. something like that um uh right before what is clearly going to be a shootout with, uh, you know, featuring Brian Dennehy and his ever-shrinking posse. Doesn't he have that line where he's like, I'm running out of deputies? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, and then so we so we see the uh, the shopkeeper uh, setting up, and then, you know, in the reflection of the glass, we see uh, a cob and his men coming out of the, the sheriff's office. Um, 
that, and the screenplay puts that they are loaded for bear. Now, that moment of the reflection on the screen doesn't work too well on the small screen. Maybe uh, if we saw this in theaters, it would have uh, been a bit more clear. Um, so, yeah, so uh, the screenplay yeah. says that uh, the, uh, the villains who come out, Cobb, McKendrick, Tyree, Kyle, and Dusty, uh, come out, and they are loaded for bear, a term that I've certainly heard all my life, but I've never really given much thought before. So I actually looked it up, and from Grammarist.com says... The idiom loaded for bear originated in North America in the 1800s. The phrase was originally used literally to mean to load one's firearm without power to kill a bear. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the implication yeah. of the person is equipped to kill anything that comes his way because the bear is the largest predator in the North American continent, though people seldom hunt bear anymore. That makes sense to me. The popularity of the idiom loaded for bear continued to grow. Yeah. So so uh, they, uh, they they load up. They're getting ready for Act 3, too. Um Dusty rides off, Kyle goes off on foot, and uh, McKendrick, uh, you know, yeah, sort of waggles his finger at Cobb um, and, uh, and, and tells him uh, you shouldn't have gone this far. You, know, you better watch your bleep. These guys are shooting off. Um, so, and that is how uh, this minute ends with, uh, with Cobb sort of uh, smirking uh, at this. What were your general reactions to, uh, to, to seeing this movie for the first time? Well, first of all, the cast is crazy. I mean, it's, yeah. the the people who are in this movie, you know, it might be one of the great Kevin Bacon game connectors that does not actually yeah, have Kevin true, Bacon yeah. in it, right? Um, right. Uh, uh, as soon as you start seeing the credits, like by the end of the credits where it's listing the names of the people at the beginning of the movie, I was literally laughing. I was like, Jeff Goldblum? Like, what? what is yeah. going on in this? Um, so actually, something that connects to this minute that I want to talk about with this film has to do with its structure in a way that reminds me of actually one of my favorite novels, which is a Western, which is a novel called Warlock by Oakley Hall, which is actually uh, adapted into a film, although it's it's not supposed to be, with Henry Fonda and DeForest Kelly that I have never seen. Um, but it's like a, it's an epic, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant um, book that actually I think I wouldn't be surprised if Kasdan read and took some stuff uh, 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 for this room. But, you know, as soon as everyone's in the same city, in this case in Silverado, they all sort of know that this is how this story is going to end. Yeah. You know? And so they all know that they're, it's eventually going to come to them all killing each other. You know, there's a sort of doom over the proceedings. Not that the movie is dark, because actually the movie's pretty light in its tone, but it's just sort of like everyone knows this is where it's going. And so one of the interesting things about Westerns, and this can also be true of sci-fi movies, I think, was why so many sci-fi movies and stories are Westerns in space. You know, you're yes. just stuck on a space station instead of in a town or whatever, is that, you know, because the nearest town isn't very close because of the scarcity of natural resources like water and food and things like that, these folks really are all stuck here. They're all stuck in the same place. And so there's this weird thing where they're like, you know, someone is in this direction in relationship to the town, and so someone's north of the town, someone's south of the town, someone's in the town, someone owns the saloon, someone's the sheriff, someone's the rich guy, someone's the this, and they're all kind of circling around each other because they just know it's going to go down. They just know that it's an untenable situation to have McKendrick there and to have Emmett 
there because Emmett killed McKendrick's dad. Yeah. Right. And there's just no way that that's going to end up okay. And you just know as soon as Brian Dennehy flashes the sheriff's badge, like, oh, he's corrupt and he's in McKendrick's yeah. pocket. And, and Kevin Klein knows it too. He's not surprised by that. And so what's really interesting is there's this inevitability. And so because the plot has a kind of inevitability about it, the open question becomes, well, what's Kevin Klein's character going to do about all of this? Because he has a much deeper history with Cobb than he does with Emmett. He's said many times over the course of the movie that he doesn't really want to be killing people anymore, although he keeps ending up doing it and he's very good at it. That, you know, he's out of the biz. Uh, you assume that they were either, I don't think it's explained in the movie whether they were like, mercenaries or bounty hunters or cattle rustlers or whatever they were but he used to be in a gang that that Cobb ran he's not in it anymore and so the kind of fight over his soul I found really compelling especially once again once um Linda Hunt shows up because she's so good and they're so good in their scenes together. You know, it's just very, very impressive. So that, that was what I really, uh, uh, took from it along again with the cast. Uh, as you say, you know, that does add this thing though, like when the posse comes out of the prison and they're all ready to, you know, Brian Denny, he's ready for the final showdown. They sort of know that's what they're doing. It's like, well, it's time for the third act climax, you know, uh, um, uh, in a way, uh, which is a, which is a weird thing to kind of do as a, as a viewer. It also has sort of two epic shootouts back to back without a lot of time in between the two of them, which I think renders the second one less potent and less interesting. It is a little bit of a baggy movie, you know, um, uh, in that way. I mean, and in the way that Kazan's movie pairs off heroes and villains that, you know, every hero, you know, now is going to has to confront their villain. We've already seen Danny Glover's yes. character uh, sort of accidentally kill the man who killed his father, but he still has to go and, and deal with Jeff Goldblum, you know, uh, who's, you know, also messed with his family. And, uh, and so and so we just we just know how sort of, you know. The, the four heroes are going to pair off against the uh, the remaining villains to uh, each of the yeah, and, and yes, the villains totally. they each have their too. nemesis. That's yeah, yeah. Everyone knows it's like, oh, you're my nemesis. Got it, got it. Okay, we have to keep escalating until there's an excuse to kill each other. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's that's fascinating. There is a thing with Kasdan's films where wrote Empire Strikes Back, which is one of the, the you know, which is on a structural level kind of brilliant. But there is a thing in his own self-directed films where, like, the structure gets really weird. You know, Grand Canyon is has a very, is structurally very strange. Wyatt Earp is, like, 19 hours long. Uh, I actually like Wyatt Earp. I'm sort of a Wyatt Earp defender. Uh, uh, so it's not a tight film, but I, I think that's kind of okay. Like, I enjoyed it. I think the performances are really good. I think that the way it addresses its themes is really interesting. It's really weird to see Kevin Klein as a crack shot gunman yeah. in a Western. If you're used to him from fish called Wanda or soap dish or Dave, or, you know, uh, even Ricky in the flash, you know, you think of him as an aristocrat. And so to have him kind of playing this role was, was interesting to see uh, having all these people at this early stage of their careers. Really my, my guess. Um, and I have all who been knew Kevin Klein. Uh, if all, we've Sorry, all at, at seeing Kevin Costner, seeing seeing you know young boyish roguish Kevin Costner, rather than you know the the sort of you know uh, uh, crusty veteran dad or you know 
district attorney or whatever he was in, in so many of his, uh, his other roles. So you know. good in this movie. Yeah. Kevin yeah. Costner's so good in this movie. I mean, it's in a weird way, it feels like he was ruined by being turned into a leading man. Yeah. And, you know, if, if he had just been allowed to do this sort of thing and to be fun, I mean, who knew that Kevin Costner could be fun? That's not an actor you associate with fun on camera. You know Absolutely what I mean? Not. Yeah. And he's so enjoyable and charismatic and sexy and goofy in this movie and in, and in Bull Durham, of course. Yeah. But, you know, like by the time you get to Field of Dreams, which I think is a good movie, but then like beyond that, um, he just gets so boring. It's like he gets all in his head about the fact that he's a leading man and he forgets to play characters. But here he's really playing a character. And he knows how to play a character, to connect it back to my book, because he studied with Stella Adler. Uh, and so he knows, you know, he took acting, he studied acting very hard and it's something that he took very seriously. And so there's a weird abandonment of that in the second half of his career that actually watching this movie is it, it made me a little sad about that i mean i wonder how much of it's just that you know the last time he was in a lawrence Kasdan movie he was you know he was just a corpse is he even actually uh, yeah he was his character in big chill was supposed to have some scenes but they all got cut does he show up as a as a dead body or is he just his, you uh, see his um body being prepped for the funeral although yeah. the, you never see his face so it could have been um mm-hmm. You know, it could have been a some someone else in a you know, could have been an extra or whatever. Um uh uh yeah, he appeared in flashbacks and I believe they were filmed, but they're not included in the final picture. So you can almost feel like him saying, like, yes, I'm I, not only am I not dead this time, I'm more alive than I'll ever be ever again. Um <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And he's so fun. I mean, he's yeah. really Fun. I really was surprised by it. I really was not expecting that. You know, it, it, it's really he and Linda Hunt to me are the great discoveries of of this movie yeah. from an acting perspective. I uh, I think I'm 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 with you on that. Well, all right. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps up uh, what we have to say about this minute. Uh, anything you want to uh, make sure people uh, check out? Uh... Well, first of all, I'm just going to say if you live in a frontier town, maybe keep your expensive porcelain indoors because there's probably going to be a shootout and uh, you're going to lose all that stuff. And you worked really hard on it, man. Just, just bring it indoors. Similarly, if you're a bartender, you got to learn how to duck behind the bar. Absolutely. You know, when the guns, when the guns get drawn, you know, I keep thinking of that scene uh, in the Muppet movie, where there's the shootout, you know, where Fozzie is performing and there's suddenly going to be a shootout and the the piano man ducks behind the piano. Anyway, um, Please, uh, if you feel so inclined, uh, I think my book is really good. I think you'll like it a lot. It's called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold. There's also an audio book of it. I narrate it, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in. Um, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is P-A-R-A-B-A-S-I-S. That's Parabasis. Uh, and I have a podcast. Go to slate.com slash working if you want to hear me interview really fascinating people talk about the creative process and what it's like to be creative for a living. All right, excellent. Well, Isaac, thank you so much. It was uh, so good to get to, to talk with you again. We've you know been interacting online for, for forever, but uh, I feel like I don't think we've actually spoken to each other in maybe ten years. So very good to. Uh, to I catch don't know. Up. I think it was Dan's wedding was the last time we were in the I think, same I think it was room a friend together. Dan's wedding, maybe? yes, yeah, a, a third member of the uh, the the, uh, the the less than glorious acapella group. Thank you, thank you, and listeners. I'll see you in the outro. <laughs> Man, that was really fun catching up with Isaac and talking about his book and about this movie. And hey, 
I do hope that you will check out Isaac's book because it is really great. And if you are interested in checking out things that I have written, may I suggest that you head on over to my social media presence, uh, which would be at Dino Carroll on Twitter or at Dino Carroll Plays on Instagram. And uh, you can find uh, my short form creations there. And also you can find my link tree which has links to the publishers of all my plays. You can go and buy them and then arrange them decoratively on a shelf outside your shop like Fine China. Great idea, right? Speaking of social media, you can find uh, this show at uh, The Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listeners Saloon on Facebook or Silverado MXM on Twitter. The Silverado Minute Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play or over on our page, SilveradoMinute.com. Folks, I have one more minute of this movie to discuss before I ride off into the sunset, so please, please do join us here next time on The Silverado Minute. Yeehaw. Yeehaw.